Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blake Benz podcast. We had such a phenomenal guest on our last episode that we had to bring her back again. I'm sitting down with Gretchen again. And by the way, if you didn't see Gretchen's episode, you need to stop right now and go back to the last episode and listen to her perspective on leadership and management. Absolutely incredible. Getting a lot of awesome feedback on it. Gretchen, welcome back today. It's great to be here. Happy Monday. I'm not sure when this will air, but today is Monday morning and super excited to talk with you again. Well, uh, I, can't, I can't wait to tell the audience why we're talking again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gretchen has been quite persistent on uh, what she would like to do with the podcast. And so I'm actually going to shut up and Gretchen, I'll hand it over to you and you can tell our listeners what we're doing today and uh, it'll be your show. So listeners, it's wonderful to um, interact with you again and to be on the Blake Benz show and podcast. When I uh, interviewed with Blake, I was so wowed. I'm 63 years old and Blake is 32. And I was just wowed by his intellect, his passion, and the fact that at 32, he already sort of knows he's already doing it. And when I was 32, I was pregnant with my second child and I hadn't the faintest idea what to do about my career, let alone my life. Your kindness is amazing, Blake, and your insight and your thoughtfulness. And just, I'm so impressed with who you are. So when we ended our interview, I asked Blake if I could interview him. Because I think that you're just as fascinating, if not even more, than the people that you have been interviewing. So here we go. (laughs) That's all very kind of you to say. And for our listeners, I did not pay her to say that. Though I probably offer you a gift now. That was awesome. I really appreciate (laughs) those encouraging words. Well, if anyone knows who I am, I always tell the truth. And sometimes in my career, I've been... Uh, I've lost a job for being truthful, but uh, I never am dishonest and I always say it the way I see it. And so everything I'm saying about you is very authentic. So thank you. Anyway, you're young, 32 years and a PhD on top of it. So I'm just impressed with your values. We're all raised with a value system. And some of us have stronger values than others, but you seem very embedded in that. And it seems to be a driver in your career. I just want to hear your life story, how you were raised, where you were raised, and go through your education too, because to get a PhD at your age is pretty impressive. So something must have been driving, whether it was curiosity of learning Um, being uh, inspired by someone else. So I'm going to just, I would love to hear your story. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. um, One of my values is integrity. And so I I really, I deeply believe in doing the right thing. And I believe in, um, even, even for me, I include honesty with that. And so, you know, you even just mentioned the PhD, Uh, And so I feel compelled. I'm a PhD candidate. And so I haven't finished my dissertation yet. Um, And so I always try to make sure I tell people that because I don't want to be dishonest with my education. But, you know, the PhD was kind of funny. I I am really not impressed with titles and I've never really, um, the motivation with it has never been to have a, you know, a doctor in front of my name or anything like that. But, you know, just in the near term of my story, I was a you know, it's just wild to think about. I was a high school teacher 10 years ago and I just, I just put a post on Facebook that, um, I was saying, you know, Hey, to all my students, I still think about you guys. I love you guys. You guys are amazing. And it was incredible. The dozens of students who were commenting and liking or now they're adults. But when I was a teacher, I was teaching in inner city Houston. And, um, what really struck me was how toxic some of the leaders were and the people who were, you know, supposed to be in your corner and I even remember my first year teaching, and in, in this school I was teaching at, some of the kids weren't even, um, many of them spoke English as a second language, but many of them weren't even literate in their primary language. And so I was like thrown into this environment where... What, what, grade, what grade level? Uh, ninth grade and 12th grade. 
Wow. So I had both, both sides of high school. And basically, uh, I was thrown in. I didn't have a teaching background. I had gone through a, an alternative education program because it was my senior year of college that I was like, I was actually pre-med. And I was like, I don't even like this. I don't want to be a doctor. This is <laughs> I had grown up watching ER with my mom on Thursday nights. And so when I went to college, it was like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor because George Clooney is amazing. And uh, you know, also the guy from uh, Full House, Jason Stamos. Well, so um, did want to do that. So very last minute, decided to be a teacher because I always just, I loved investing into people. And that was something that also had been a value of mine even before I knew what values were, you know, from like a, um, a formal uh, description, you know, investing in people and mentorship, all of that had been a, a deep rooted thing that was important to me. So I always knew I would do something that involved developing people. And I'd also been a camp counselor and thought, you know, kids are just awesome. I'd love to invest in kids. And so went to be a teacher, was thrown into this environment. And uh, right from the get go, I remember meeting and I tell the story whenever I do corporate training. I tell the story of, of me and this co-teacher. We were uh, roommates. His class was right next to my class. And we were both just totally lost. I mean, we really just were like, what are we doing? Because, you know, you're not just teaching. We're both teaching science. You're not just teaching science, but you're also thinking of how do you teach it to someone who doesn't uh, know the terminology? You know, what are the cognates in Spanish? Well, what if they don't know that word in Spanish? And it was just, a, it was a lot of work. Well, so we have this great idea to, well, why don't we meet with our principal and get some help, which, you know, you would think in any great business that the leader would want to, you know, help you and invest with you, invest in you and all these things. Well, so we have this meeting and in comes the principal, but also comes in the HR person, which was really strange to me. And I'm this naive, uh, you know, 20, 21, 22 year old thinking that's really weird. Why is this HR person here? And it was probably my, and I, I assume of a lot of goodwill from people. And it was probably the first time that I recognized that something dishonest or not, not really full of integrity was happening. Well, so my friend goes first and he starts explaining how he's lost. He needs help. He doesn't know what's going on. And as he's talking, the principal and this HR person who they're sitting just right across the table from us, they're writing sticky notes and they're passing them back to each other only like five feet away. And they're just passing these notes back and forth and just kind of nodding at each other just as he's talking to them. And I just had this sixth sense of, you know, you don't trust what's happening here. And so he says everything and, she, and the principal says, okay, well, we'll think of some things we can do to help you. And then she looks at me and she says, Blake, do you feel the same way? And I said, no, I feel great. I think I can figure it out. And just, you know, totally went a different direction on this meeting and was like, yep, you know, I think I can figure it out. I think I'm going to be okay. Well, that teacher later that day was let go for not being, wow. for not being um, you know, not being the right person on the bus and, and all of that stuff. And so that was the start of what was very characteristic of my leaders at that school. And that's what led me because of the sense of right and wrong. The reason I pursued the PhD was I was, I thought at the time I need to position myself in a way where I can coach administrators, I can coach teachers and do it the way that I think it always should have been done for the sake of our kids. Um, and since I got into the consulting space, it's been pretty much on hold for a while. But um, Was that a tipping point moment for you, Blake? It, it was, you know, it's funny because people will tell me how, oh, you're so optimistic, you're such an encourager. And I really have to actively try to be that because actually my nature my nature is actually kind of cynical and it's actually kind of pessimistic. And I don't know if I would call it a tipping point. I would call it a, um, a confirmation of how I chose to operate mentally. And, and so I had this, this moment happen where this person I was friends with got fired and it was very, it, it, it caused me to be very cynical. I, I thought that's not what I had always been taught because I had done like youth group. I had done like, you know, camps as a kid and there was always like a leadership spin to it. And so I knew what a leader was supposed to be. And yet there was this person now who was the leader who was frankly toxic and didn't have our best interests in mind. And, and so I, I remember when I was a teacher, it was, it was, it was hard not to be cynical, but, but that cynicism is also what motivated me. It was like, this has to change. Like I have to get into a different position 
out of teaching because I need to make a difference here so that people don't have to go through this again. How, how, how many years did you teach after that meeting? Three years. How did you, how, what advice do you have for people who may have a leader like that and for them to sort of walk through it because you didn't leave immediately, mm-hmm. but how can you cope with someone like that and still try to be successful? Have you gleaned any insight that maybe others uh, could learn from? Because mm-hmm. I don't think there's any of us who haven't been, haven't seen a poor leader or someone who wasn't there to, or didn't even understand what it was to support you. So what made you get through those three years? Was it focusing on the student success? And is that the lesson that others need to learn is that maybe you have a poor leader, but think about the mission of the organization you're working for. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that's exactly the answer. And it's, it's not unlike what many people are doing right now in their job today. I mean, we, at my previous company, we did a survey on um, why do people stay in their jobs even when they're miserable? And what's funny is there's this common saying of people don't quit, you know, they don't quit jobs. They quit people, they quit leaders. But what's weird about this is that that's actually not the case. There's, there's plenty of examples of people who stay in really miserable jobs, even when the boss is toxic. And the reason they do it, and one of the common answers we had in our survey were nurses who said, even though I can't stand my boss, the work I do here is too important. And so it's this, this uh, driver of the mission. And when you, when you feel like your work is meaningful, that's actually more powerful than any, any incredible manager. And so the takeaway from that is that you don't even have to be the most phenomenal leader. You just have to get your people bought in on why the work is important. So for me, I had these ninth grade students. I had these 12th graders and I had these ninth graders. And so I was seeing at the end of my first year, I was seeing these 12th graders move on and graduate. These ninth graders, they were, um, <laughs> they, they were just a tough class of kids. And I remember going into 10th grade, when they were going into 10th grade the next year, my assistant principal, excuse me, my assistant principal had said, hey, we're going to move you to a different grade because these kids are especially really challenging. There's a lot of problems that they're having. There's a lot of, um, the, in terms of the numbers of like in-school suspensions and write-ups this, this particular class had, it was larger than the other groups. And they said, we want to move you to a different grade to sort of give you a break so that you can, you know, teach some other kids. And I remember saying, I felt this level of ownership. And I said, no, I, I think I want to stay with these kids. I want to stay with the challenging kids. And, um, and that meant I had to change the subject I was teaching so I could stay with them. But I stayed with them for three years. And it was because I just really, I just desperately cared for them and cared about their success. And it felt wrong to me that they wouldn't have someone who was in their corner. And so, and, and, you know, and what, I, what I don't make, I don't want to make this sound like I was like a hero to them or anything like that. It was just, I just, I just saw that they did not have a lot of advocates and I felt a personal, I just felt a responsibility. And so that mission is what drove me. And I think that's, I think that's what keeps people showing up day after day, even when the boss is not great. You said the word advocates. We talk about mentorship a lot, but it seems like the words that are replacing mentorship are, uh, are two words, advocate and champion. It's one thing to mentor people and give them advice, but it's another thing to advocate and to champion for someone else's success. So in that classroom, it sounded that that's really what you were doing was championing and advocating for their success. Talk about that a little bit in, in situations that you've had professionally where either you have been, someone has done that for you or you've done it for someone else. And what were the outcomes? Yeah. You know, I I think um, the outcomes are not always what we hope they are to be. Yeah. Right. And I, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we, we have sort of like this Hollywood esque, perspective on leadership like when you pull the right levers from like a leadership perspective there's this really like huge magnificent you know out this thing that happens where like everyone recognizes you for being this amazing leader and and I think what I've always really liked and it's an it's another 
value of mine. I don't know if I'd call it integrity or if I'd call it a humility, but it's basically, it's not, you don't do things so you can be the star basically. And I think, I think this, this, what I, the reason I like advocacy versus mentorship is it's a much stronger actionable word. You, you are, because you're championing, championing someone, you should be doing something to make them more successful. And it's what a lot of managers miss today. Instead, when they take the mentorship role, they think that, you know, sending the email and saying, yeah, let me know if you need anything, that that's, that's mentorship. It's not mentorship. Well, so for me, what I've always tried to do is I've always tried to look for people. Um, and I actually, the way I think of it is, is, you know, you have these moments where you're in the spotlight as a leader and as a boss, but the real magic of leadership is when you look for other people to pull in the spotlight. And I had a mentor when I was very young who his expression, his saying was always hold the ladder for other people to climb up. And he was a boss and he would even say that to us. He'd say, my mission is to hold the ladder so that you guys can climb even higher than I ever did. Not That's worth repeating. So repeat what he said to you because people should be writing that down and putting it somewhere where they can read it. Sure. Hold the ladder for others to climb up. And it's especially relevant, I think, in the corporate game where everyone's always thinking about that next rung. And so what I've, what I've tried to do, especially people that I work with, you know, let's say I have a peer that I, I remember previous companies, I'd have a peer I'd be working closely with and I would do something that would be really good that'd be like worth, worth recognizing. Well, so, so like a great example would be we had, a, uh, we had an employee who was working at a remote office who she was working really hard. And I overheard that she was feeling a little underappreciated because she wasn't in the central office. She was at this remote location. She was working really long weeks. And I just, I gleaned from something she said offhand that, okay, that person doesn't feel appreciated. And so what I did was I went to the local, um, I can't what it's called, where you get flowers, uh, the flower shop. Right. Like the 800 number? Not the 800, like the actual, no. like the actual oh, local place. And, um, I said, you know, I have this employee want to get her flowers. And I remember I bought the flowers out of my own pocket and I sent them to her. And then it was basically came around, Hey, who bought these for her? And I said, Hey, I think, and I mentioned my boss. I said, I think my boss bought them for you. And so I, I just, you know, I've always tried to do something like that where instead of like taking the credit, I try to give it to someone else or I, you know, maybe I do something right. And i actually, I remember we had this we had this, I was managing a team and we had the, this big like pancake breakfast one Friday. And I had gone through all the work of like getting the ingredients and like getting it together and planning it and getting the space where we we're going to plan it and just basically planning this whole event. Well, I had this co-team leader who I was also leading with. And um, so the, people, the team loved it. They were just like, this is amazing. It's so fun. And basically it was like, hey, who put this together? And her name was Hannah. And I said, hey, I think Hannah did. I think Hannah put it together. And so I, I just... For me, it's fun to, um, you know, to bring other people into the spotlight and make them make them the superheroes and make them the champions. And um, that's that's also what I try to do with my students is just try to make them feel like they're valuable and that they're rock stars. And um, I don't know. There's there's an old Bible verse that talks about you know don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. And so I just for me, there's like a certain sweetness when you do something noble or rights or meaningful as a leader. And then you don't tell anyone about it. You know, it's not about your own PR and it's not about, and it's actually, it's Jim Collins talks about it in good to great, where he talks about the level five leader and he talks about the best leader across history actually weren't the ones that you know about. It's usually the leaders you don't know about because they're spending more time promoting their people than they are, you know, promoting their own ego. So that's, that's really interesting because I, I, I agree with you. I don't know if you've read Sheryl Sandberg's book about leaning in, but mm -hmm. I, I really, I really struggled with that book. And because it was very <clears throat> much about uh, taking credit and um, moving yourself to the table instead of sitting on the out, outside of the room or, you know, against the wall and to really advocate and push for yourself. And I often, I, I sat on the National Women's Hall of Fame board of directors, and there's a lot of work still to be done to create um, more opportunity for women, but opportunity, but 
it's it's a very conflicting it's 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 for another show <laughs> but <clears throat> so there's two i i hear this a lot and i would love to hear your opinion on it about holding the ladder for someone else not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing which is very humble leadership about not getting credit versus the other side of the argument that's very much out there and active about women have to take more credit, lean in, step forward, be more aggressive, and demand and ask for respect and opportunity. How can you, is there a way that you can take the latter and blend it with the former? Mm-hmm. Where you can advocate, but you can be humble about that advocation. Mm-hmm. Thoughts about that? Yeah, Donnie Smith, who was the CEO of Tyson, he's retired now. He lives locally here. He calls it humble confidence, and he talks about you know you can be. And, and the reason he calls it that is is he's become he's calling it he's talking about that sweet spot that's in the middle, and that's something that I've tried. You know, moving towards that middle ground is something that I've tried to do especially over the last four or five years, because I know with that, that totally give all credit away mentality, I know for sure I've lost opportunities because of it. But I, but I also, you know, my conscience is clear, so it doesn't really bother me. But on the same token, you know, there's this, there has to be a level of, and it's not necessarily like, do I take the credit for this one or that one? And I think it's more of like your mindset of you are asserting that you do know what you're doing and that you are the person who can get results. And so in Donnie's case, he talked about how he was constantly looking for those people to promote, but at the same time, he didn't have any problem coming up to the table and having a seat and saying, I belong here. You know, I deserve to be here. Here are the reasons why. I think what's also interesting is, is when you promote your people in many cases, whenever a, a position opens up or it's time for you to move up, it actually works to your favor where those people are much more inclined to work for you now because they've seen your style of leadership. Um, but, but there does have to be a both and. You have to have both. Otherwise, you will lose opportunities. Uh, but if it's always about you, then people will, will sniff that out as well. And so I don't, I don't have a more uh, direct answer other than you know, I think, I think the balancing of those two plates is a constant challenge. And I think it's something that we just have to continue to work at. Uh, and discuss. So I'm going to take a break in our uh, longer conversation. I'm going to do some rapid fire questions for you. <laughs> okay. Um, where were you born? Little, Little Rock, Arkansas. Where were you raised? Little Rock, Arkansas. Do you have any siblings? I have five siblings. So where are you in the rank? Second youngest. And I have a uh, twin sister who she's two minutes older. Oh, two minutes older. Uh, <laughs> and what, what's the age range between the, the eldest and the youngest? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you're asking me this. Uh, my oldest brother just had a birthday two days ago. And I cannot think of how old he is. I think he, <laughs> I think he just turned 39, I think. Maybe forty. Okay, so your your mom had six yeah. children within a short period of time. Yeah, Will, if you're listening, I'm sorry that I don't remember how old you are. <laughs> so. How how was your childhood? Was it rambunctious? Did you live in the country? Did you live in a neighborhood with lots of people around? We lived in a neighborhood, and it was um, didn't have I didn't have a lot of friends in my neighborhood but I had friends in nearby neighborhoods. And so we would either hang out together after school and our parents would pick us up or once I could drive, you know, I would just drive over and hang out with them. But, um, man, I had, I had a great upbringing. I had awesome parents, uh, still have awesome parents. I had a really supportive, um, my teachers were just amazing. I had probably the best teachers I could ever want. You know, when people talk about high school, a lot of times they're like, oh my gosh, high school. I loved high school. I, I guess I was a weirdo. I, I just had awesome, supportive people. People, I'm actually friends with my teachers on Facebook today. I mean, they are just, they're just amazing. The most incredible, inspiring, motivating people who made me believe that I could accomplish pretty much anything. I mean, just, That's just awesome. So some of the things you learned from your mother and some of the things that you learned from your father. Yeah, for my mom, it would definitely be to be empathetic and to think of other people. You know, she was always really good at reminding us 
that our actions had an impact on someone else. And so whenever I would do something like particularly selfish or, you know, what have you, she would be very quick to point out, you know, do you see how that affected someone else? Even something down to like, you know, I got a gift from my aunt and I didn't write her a thank you card. And it wasn't just like, hey, you need to write her a thank you card. It was, hey, you need to write one because it, otherwise you're communicating you don't appreciate what she's done for you. Um, from my dad, it would probably be two things. Uh, my dad's probably one of the most, probably the biggest giver I've ever met. Um, he's always asking, even when, you're, when I'm visiting, we were just visiting for the holidays, he'll say, hey, man, can I get you a bottle of water? Can I get you a Coke? Can I get you, you know, a glass of wine? Can I... I mean, he's just, he's such a servant, such a giver. And, um, I've just always admired that about him. And I just try to, especially when we're dealing with customers, I just try to have that same mentality of, you know, really going over the top of, can I get this for you? Can I do this for you? You know, it doesn't matter if it's not my job per se. It's just, I I want people who I'm working with to feel like they're taken care of. Um, yeah. So bi- biggest regret you had in your childhood, something you did that was bad that you shouldn't have done. Uh, the biggest regret I have is I was working at a summer camp and uh, it was when I first, I worked at the summer camp for probably 12 how, years. How old were you? I think I was maybe 15 years old and um, my family, I loved this summer camp. I really loved this summer camp and um, my parents were, they had saved up and they were taking everybody to a, um, like a water park, um, some kind of destination water park place. And, uh, I said, I wanted to go to camp instead of going to this vacation with the family. And I've always regretted it. I don't know. I just, I've always thought like, man, I chose this random summer camp instead of time with my family. And, um, my mom still mentions it. She's like, Oh yeah, you weren't there for that. And so I, I, she's over it. She's not secretly harboring anything, but I've just, I've always thought about that of, man, I, I should have spent time with my family there. Oh my goodness. You sound like you were a pretty good child. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I you didn't, didn't really. Get in, you didn't get no. into a lot of trouble. No, because when I was a kid, this probably sounds really obnoxious, but like, even as a kid, I just felt like, I felt like um, I had influence and I felt like, I felt like I had an opportunity to impact people. And that's why I wanted to go to this camp was because I felt like, because this camp was like a mentoring camp. And I've just have always felt this drive to mentor people. And so that's because of that, I, f- I felt like I can't get into anything crazy because it will, and it wasn't about like what think of me. It was like for my own integrity, it, it will remove the ability for me to impact people the way I want to. Um, so yeah, I guess I was a boring, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it just shows your kindness because you are very, very kind. So fast forward through uh, teaching and now what you're doing, and it sounds like it's your calling, and there must be a reason for it. You have a baby coming in a couple of months, your first one, and I want to get into that a little bit because I want to ask you some perspective on that, because I, um, and I'll get to that in a few minutes, but you decided to uh, move forward and establish your own consulting mm-hmm. company. Why did you do that? And what do you hope to accomplish with it? What's your goal? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, what you've probably picked up on me is I, you know, everything that I do, if it doesn't, if it doesn't move the needle for someone, I'm not interested in doing it, you know, even if it pays well. And at my previous consulting company, which, you know, the jump there basically happened because they were hiring and I was wrapping up my doctorate. And then ironically, once I got this job, I totally put a hold of my doctorate. But, um, you know, they were looking for someone with a teaching background. And so it was a great fit and um, worked there for a few years. And that job was awesome because I realized, wow, there's bad bosses everywhere. But ultimately, the jump to start my own company was I had a client who sometimes you have clients who they just want to check the box. Like they just, they're doing leadership development because it's like, oh, we have an extra $10,000 laying around. Let's, let's do a team a team day or something. And so let's hire someone to come in and talk about this topic. And I had probably like maybe 70% of my clients were just like amazing, inspiring, incredible. But then I had this narrow band of clients who were well-paying clients, but were absolutely checking the box. And I remember talking with my leadership about it 
saying, you know, in a dream world, I would say goodbye to these clients because even though they pay well, they are not legitimately interested in being better leaders. And it was even one company who they were paying, they were paying a fortune to get their managers developed, but the bad habits that they didn't want their managers to have, the senior leaders were the ones who were instilling those bad habits. They were the ones who actually were the toxic ones, not the managers. Yeah. And so basically what happened was I just, I talked to my boss about it and basically just said, you know, this is never going to change. I mean, these people pay very well and they, uh, and they're just, even if they don't pay well, they're really just important clients to our area and we're always going to have them. And so for me, I kind of thought, you know, um, I, I, I'm too, <laughs> I don't want to live in, I don't want to have a job that I'm unhappy with. 30% of the time, I want a job that I'm happy with 100% of the time. And so just pure business-wise, I didn't have a non-compete. And I thought, you know, I could probably offer what my consulting company is offering at a sliver of the price. And I could choose my clients and only work with the people who really desperately want this. And so that's what I did. And at the time, my boss actually was resigning because she, this was a different boss, she got a job. Her dream job was to run a Chick-fil-A store and she got that oh, job. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, um, it was really hard to move on from that. So it, it felt like a natural time to move on because leadership was changing anyway. But um, it was an amazing company, phenomenal people. I still think of them as family, but um, it was just, I thought, you know, for my mission, my mission's too important to spend any more time here. And so I need to, I need to make the leap. I need to make the jump and start this thing and see if I could do it. I felt like I could do it, but I, I wanted to see if I could. Um, and so now it's been a little over a year since it's Good Advice fantastic. started. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about something that I've noticed a lot with my women retreats. Um, I have this retreat, as you know, called 28 Hours for Me, and it's just for women leaders. And we have advocators and champions uh, that are comprised of women who are at the top of their mountain career-wise or have retired out of their career. And they uh, help facilitate and advocate. And and part of the 28 hours is I ask uh, the attendees why they're there and what they hope to get out of it. And they just put them on stickies and they slap them up on a window and then I arrange them in themes to review them. And interesting, as much as learning leadership, as much as learning network was work-life balance. I have run this workshop or retreat four times and it's always the same. There is an amazing amount of stress with women in trying to balance family, their children, and their career. And it's, it's a real stressor, so much so I was actually amazed at how much it really bubbled up to the top. And their lack of figuring out how to reconcile that. Now, you have a child on the way, and you're a man, not a woman. But I'm interested in, because you're 32 years old, what do you think, what is the role you're going to play as a father and, and with your wife to create an environment where there's less stress on a woman? I want you to talk about that because I'm hoping that maybe women out there that are listening to this who can't find that balance yet may be inspired that there may be a path forward for them to find that balance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if your wife is feeling that a little bit, but I just want to put that out from a man's perspective. I want you to just talk about <laughs> what I just what I just laid out. Yeah, well, what it's, a, a, it's a big, big issue. And what a what a challenging question too. I, I think I think what's difficult, especially I think what's difficult sometimes too is especially in the work area. I think women more than men have this sort of expectation of choice of, are you going to choose your career or choose your family? And I don't think men necessarily have that same, um, I don't think they're forced to make that same choice sometimes. And so I, 
I empathize. Really? With so you still, because I know that I felt that and I'm 63 and you're 32. So you still think that's very prevalent. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know how prevalent it is. I think it would be ignorant to say that it's totally, it's non-existent, right? I mean, I, I think even, even uh, my wife, Joy, you know, she runs her own business. And in some ways, I think her business is more successful and profitable than mine. And I think, I think even her from, and we hadn't even talked about it, but her natural, the natural conversation that she created was, hey, what's my role going to be once the baby's here? Which, which my perspective is, let's have you do whatever you want to do. If you want to, you know, cause she actually said, you know, I guess I need to tell my clients goodbye. I guess I need to tell them. And I was like, well, I mean, do you want, do you want to keep working? Do you want to, she was like, yeah, I do. And so then now it's my job then to support that rather than take this, you know, uh, <laughs> chauvinistic, well, you know, let me think about that. You know, I, I think, I think it's less prevalent, but there has to be an opportunity for people to choose what they want out of their life circumstances rather than this is your, your gender role. And that's actually something that's always been really true for Joy and I is even from when we were married, even talking about like who's responsible for what, we've always tried to buck gender norms and just make it who do, you know, what do we want to do? And so even me asking her and her asking me, hey, what, what do you want to do? You know, do, do you take out the trash because you're a man or do you take out the trash because you want to and I don't want to, which that's exactly the case. She doesn't want to take it out and I'm happy to take it out. But, you know, like laundry dishes, things like that, it's all, it's all what we talk about rather than this is a gender role. In terms of work-life balance, separate from that whole conversation, I think what's, what Joy and I have just tried to, to think about is when this baby comes, how do, we, how do we just make her the priority, her the baby, and just give her the time that she needs as opposed to, um, I don't know, I've never done this before, so <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. But here's what's interesting, though, going back to like the prevalency of this whole conversation, I did read a statistic, and I'm going to butcher it because I can't remember it, but I did read a statistic that it was like men, fathers today, it's like fathers today spend 87% more time with their kids than they did 20 years ago uh, because typically 20 years ago, the, the dad was um, disconnected at work, you know, 60, 80 hours, 80 hour weeks, whatever. And so what does that mean for work-life balance? I'm not sure. Other than it seems like people are, they are finding ways to prioritize time personally with the kids. Um, I don't know what that looks like in terms of the people that, that you're serving though. I think you made some good points though. And I hope that both men and women heard them and write them down that men can be proactive to actually, you know, step in and have conversations with their wives and talk about, you may feel a lot of stress. What is it that I can do or how can we rearrange what we do as a family in order for it to be a win-win so that both, both husband and wife in their careers feel that they're being supported and they have the same opportunity to do what they want to do. And vice on the other side, for women who are listening to what you had to say, to sit down and abandon sort of the gender roles. I think often we, I think we are the gatekeepers to the home, but that doesn't mean that within the gates, everything has to be a traditional role. And I thought that mm -hmm. was really interesting to sort well, of lay down what do, what do we enjoy doing versus what should we sure. be presuming that we need to do in order for us to be successful as a mother or as a wife is then that's when the guilt comes in. Right. Yeah. And you know, and, and maybe it's part, maybe it's part of DNA because I just, you know, and, and I don't have any problem with roles, so to speak. It's, it's more about communication. It's who's going to do what and what does this look like for both of us? But like joy, for example, when the house is messy, I'm just like, whatever. But she feels this, this responsibility as, as a host and as, as use the word, the gatekeeper to the home. I mean, she feels a burden when it's not, it doesn't look good. That's not a role that I've put on her. It's just it's part of, it's part of who she is. Right. And so I think some of this, I think is just natural, but on the other hand, you know, it's, it's okay just to have the conversation and, and for, you know, my job, for example, my job, the opportunity for income is much higher than her job, than her business that she runs. 
And that doesn't mean that my job gets priority over her. It's because she also needs to find fulfillment in what she's doing. We still have to communicate and figure out what works for both of us. And so it's not, it's not, you know, Blake gets four days to do what he wants and Joy gets one. It's, it's equal us together. What does this look like? And so like a great example you know, hey, she said something like, hey, every Thursday and Friday, I think I'm going to put all my students, because she runs a tutoring business, I'm going to put all my students on Thursday and Friday. And so I need you to not take any meetings. I need you to be around, take care of the baby. And so is there like an understood possible loss of revenue there? Maybe. But what's more important is that she's supported and that the baby then has her dad for those two days. Um, that's what we're thinking of. Again, we've never had kids before. And so it may be six months from now. I'm like, okay, hang on, Gretchen. We gotta, we gotta redo this section. Cause <laughs> I was told I was way off. So. Well, I think, I think you made some good points and, and I hope the listeners who are struggling with this understands that go, go to the table, communicate and try to find that win-win balance. Um, because there is a lot of stress out there and, you know, stress is a killer and a lot of things can, you know, what are the things that are really important and what are the things that can cleaning up a room at the end of the day, because the kids have all their toys all over, maybe is not as important. And I know that I always felt that I had to keep a clean house. And now I look back and it's like, it didn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So, um, interesting. So another, I just want <clears throat> to close up today just talking about character and values. Mm-hmm. So before then, I want you to think of the worst characteristic or value that you see in a leader that a leader should never have. So just talk about that, those traits that you think if a leader has them, they can never be a leader or they shouldn't ever be a leader. So think about that for a second. <laughs> Come up with a few that you think are just killers. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to think about it. I've seen it. It's ego. You need it. It's, it's ego. E- Any leader who has ego will not be successful long-term. They, they will be as successful as however long they're able to keep people under them, you know, whether that's a revolving door of talent you know, but I, I have seen bosses who are so egotistical that it's amazing they get anything done. Uh, really, the only things they get done are the ones that immediately then stroke their ego. And unless they, um, and typically they go on when it doesn't work out anymore at the company that they're at, they just move on laterally to a new company and they take, you know, we have a, a pretty uneducated business world that we're really, we love data and we're really quick to jump on data without really knowing what it means. And so an ego driven leader will co- will, they'll go into a business and they'll have a totally, you know, burnout style culture. You know, people are, are not staying there. They're quitting. They hate working for this person, but maybe the numbers are really good for six months, even though it's not sustainable. And what the leader will then do is they'll take those numbers as proof of what I do works and they'll use that to leverage their, their next position or their next company. But a, I think any leader who is ego driven, it's, it's literally, I mean, I've worked with hundreds of leaders. It is the number one disruptor to someone's career. It's, it's everything that's implied with ego. It's, it's an unwillingness to change an, an unwillingness to grow see other perspectives, you know, take criticism and feedback. These are all things that every person professionally needs to be successful. You know, the ego-driven manager, boss, leader, whoever, they're not inclined to accept those things. And so, uh, so in an interviewing process, especially because as you know, my books are called fish rough from the head down because that's usually what happens in an organization that is heading south is look to the top because that's where the rod is. So how do you how do you pick a CEO that doesn't have an ego? Are there interviewing questions? Are board of directors are there things that you can guide board of directors or, or people on search committees or even professional search firms? How do they how do they are there ways to find someone who is very egotistical so that they don't pull them forward as a strong candidate? Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, any, I think any suggestions on how you sort of glean that out? Sure. And I, I think for the record, I think these types of questions or things you would think about are the same things that a job applicant should be thinking of when they meet their prospective boss, when they're thinking about, is this someone I would want to work for, right? Because contrary to popular belief, you don't have to work in a job where you hate your boss. You know, you could work in, I mean, I felt like with my last company, I felt like it was my dream job. I mean, I had an amazing CEO, amazing team, what have you. But um, I think questions about their team are important. Questions about what they accomplished. You know, Jim Collins, what he put it as simply as whenever he talked about um, the now bankrupt Rubbermaid, which Rubbermaid was, it was the, you know, fortune most admired company for years and went bankrupt seven years within, within a decade, they were totally gone and they don't exist anymore today. They're, they're, um, Newell brands who still keep the Rubbermaid name. And Jim Collins even went as far as to point out how many times the Rubbermaid CEO when talking about the achievements of the company would even say things like I versus we. Like I did this, I made this happen. I, um, so I think, I think their language is important. I think also, you know, when you, when you ask them to talk about their greatest success stories, you know, when prospective CEOs talk about their team and they talk about people who they saw become successful, that's usually a leader who is less interested in their own personal achievements and who really understand that champion piece and that advocating piece. You know, and I don't think, going back to that balance, I don't think if you're applying for a job, you need to be so humble that you're like, yeah, I don't even know why you would hire me. I don't know. You know, there there can be a little bit of ego. There can be a little bit of grounds. Um, And I think people, I think people are are pretty perceptive. You know, when you talk about how successful your team versus you, successful your team was, I mean, people have the insight to recognize, okay, this is a leader who really understands how to lead a team and drive a team. You know, and ultimately, I think that's one of the biggest things to think about because, you know, as a CEO, you're running an entire organization. It's not, it's not your proficiencies or talents or, or what have you. It's your ability to cascade vision across however many people are in that company. And so if, if that person can't talk about their people in a way of making them success stories, it's probably not going to make a very good CEO. Well, I loved what you said before about the humble, humble confidence. Right. That you can have confidence, but with humility. And I think that's something people should sit and rest on, because I think those were two really powerful words put together to make a very big point. Some statistics before we close up today. Some statistics that maybe we assume one thing, but it really is not that way. Because I know that you're sort of a trust but verify kind of guy. Hmm. Um, You seem to have a lot of statistics, but are there any statistics that would be surprising that the audience would say, well, I never knew that? Only 10% of people are actually (gasps) self-aware. Wow. So, And that, that wouldn't even include me, right? And so... Wow. So then it's to your benefit to understand who you think you are and who everyone else thinks that you are. That's especially relevant for the leader um, because as much as we don't like it to, for people to have different perspectives of us, perception is reality, right? And so um, I've just tried to make it my goal to be as reflective as possible to get that person who other people see to get as much perspective on who that person is. You know, for example, I'm really sarcastic. I make so many jokes all the time to the point where my wife is my walking filter. So I'll make a joke <laughs> and she'll say, he's just kidding. Um, but I, I had to realize that for some people that sarcasm was really toxic um, and sometimes hurtful. And so getting, you know, seeing that, it's an insight now where I can think about, okay, how do I build a relationship with someone? How do I be genuine with someone rather than always sarcastic? Um, because I want people to, to trust me and for me to be able to really, you know, invest in them. So, Any other statistic that we would say, wow, I didn't know that? Yeah, I mean, the one that I mentioned at the start, you know, the whole um, people quit 
quit bosses. They don't quit companies. It's really not true. I mean, people actually, if, if this was true, why do so many people have miserable bosses that they work for? <laughs> you know, I can think of like 10 right now off the top of my head who, who literally just in the last couple of weeks have told me about their awful boss. You know, people will work where they're, where they feel like their work matters, even if they don't get paid well for it. And that's, that's the bottom line. The challenge for us as leaders is to give them that work that matters and also be that great leader that they deserve. You know, it's, it's just funny to me. I think our culture, we have like this, this martyrdom culture of like, I was just, it's so funny. I was talking to this guy who hates his job. He was saying how miserable he is in it. And I said, what are you going to do? And he was like, well, I guess I'll work there for another five years. Which <laughs> just, it just blew my mind. But then I was talking to I was talking to someone just a couple weeks ago and it was the exact same story. He said, he, he's just so unhappy. He's working all these hours and I asked him, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I guess I'm going to be patient for another four or five years. And we just have this culture of people who they, they hate their job and they almost feel like they're supposed to hate their job. It's like the dream job is a dream job. It doesn't exist. And it's like, no, you can be aggressive in creating the circumstances you want out of life, you know, cause we only have one of them, you know, it's, <laughs> there's no do overs. Right. And so I've just, you know, it's funny. I remember when I was, um, I think I was like 15 or 16 years old. My dad and I went to like this father son. Uh, I can't remember what it was. It was some kind of mentorship thing. But I remember there was like 300 guys there and then, and everyone was much older than I was. They were actually, it actually wasn't a father son thing. I did it with my dad, but it was mostly for professional men. And the number one thing that he talked about was men who were unhappy with their jobs and who were in their 40s and were just so miserable. And I remember looking around and seeing so many older men who were just nodding and just totally involved in this. And I just remember thinking at that moment, and again, I was like 15 or 16, and I thought, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be that person. If I don't like something in my life, I'm going to change it. And I, I think I think that's something that everyone needs to be thinking of. If you don't like your circumstances, you can change it. But you know, pain change is painful. And so it, it comes with a cost but it's worth it. Right. So some suggestions when that statistic blew me away, uh, 10% only Mm -hmm. 10% are self-aware. So if most of us lack self-awareness, how do we take ourselves out of a bad work environment and find a good one? What are some of the steps that we need to do Mm-hmm. the homework we have to do in order for us to gain clarity so that we can be proactively mm-hmm. stepping into a role or a job or career that is fulfilling in all ways. Mm-hmm. Because well, I think that it's not just about it coming to you. We have to do work in order to prepare ourselves. And wow, 90% are not aware, self-aware. That's That blows me away. So what's some of the homework that people can do that are listening right now who may be unhappy, well, how would you advise them to go about preparing themselves for a completely different future um, that hopefully is fulfilling and happy? I'd say the number one thing you absolutely have to do is get clarity on what your values are. What do you value as a person? And that can be, and it doesn't have to be something that you, um, like a sexy list. I mean, it's literally, these are the things that I care most about. And then start thinking about what would a job look, what would a job look like that, that checks the boxes of those values lists? So for me, I mentioned mentorship. I mentioned integrity. You know, it's, it's I knew I was going to be in a job that developed people even before I even knew what consulting was. But people I feel like aren't, even even at, you know, as they get older, aren't really clear on what they're passionate about. You know, we live in a culture that has, there's so much opportunity to try new things. And yet there are people who are blissfully unaware of what drives them. You know, one of the two people who I just mentioned, who I said, they're going to stay in their job for five years. I asked the question, I said, what do you want to do? What, what, what fulfills you? Like, what do you love doing? And he said, I I don't know. And he's 40. And I, I, th- I just, I thought you need to take some time and reflect and really think about what is the number one driver in your life. And in recognizing what that thing is, th- it also takes a level of belief of there is a job where you can do that, that will pay you well enough to make a living and where you actually have people you enjoy working with. Because I think that's the other piece of it too, is we lack perspective on what work should be like. 
in the sense of we just assume that work just has to be miserable. Work just has to be terrible. It just has to be something that we have to do to work to the weekend. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, even if you have a corporate-esque style job, I've known lots of corporate people who absolutely adore their company, adore what they're doing. You know, when we talk about loving your job, it doesn't have to be um, hobby related and it doesn't have to be something nonprofit related, which is where a lot of people go is that it has to be this give back type mentality. You know, find out what drives you, think about what your values are, and then find the job that lets you do those things. Very important advice. Blake, you are just on a roll. Your your work is amazing. Your your thinking at such a young age is impressive. Thank you. And just your humility, and is is just inspiring. Do you have a marker in your future where you will say, "I've accomplished exactly what I had hoped to accomplish"? <laughs> Or is your journey just an ever-folding journey and you're not quite sure where that marker is and it may be forever and ever and ever until the last moment when you shut your eyes? Uh, do you have something in your head where you say, this, is, this will be my point of success or where I know that I've really accomplished what I wanted to? How do you think about that? Because I, I a, a lot of people are goal-oriented and a lot of people aren't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, um, you know, you would think that I would feel like satisfied once, you know, once someone says, Hey, you changed my life. You you think that would be okay. Now I'm good. Um, cause I mean, I have students who've messaged me. I've had people I've worked with. I've had clients who said things like you've totally changed my life. And, um, I, I, I just, I've never really been driven by like a number for me. It's just a, um, it's a never ending hunger. I just, I just always think about, okay, who can I impact next? You know, who can I, who can I invest in next? And that's, that's frankly just what drives me is I'm just thinking about how do I make someone else more successful as an individual because of my insight into their life. Um, and so as long as I'm doing that with my life, I'm happy. You know, that's what fulfills me. You know, I really, I don't have a number in terms of revenue in mind. I don't have a number of people, like people reached, you know, like podcast listeners. I don't have anything like that in mind. It's, it's all, all of those are just totally supplementary numbers to, um, they let me know, am I really making an impact? Um, the only other side to that is Joy and I have always dreamed of being massive givers. And, um, I, I'm financially, I'm driven in my business to make as much money as possible because for Joy and I, it's so exciting to think about just giving it away, you know, and that sounds so hokey and cliche, but, but, um, you know, my parents, for example, were joking about, we were just in Florida and they were like, we were driving and she, they were like, you know, whenever we win the lottery, we're going to buy that house. And they've given so much. My, my mom, you know, gave up her career to raise six kids. So how awesome would it be to be able to be like, yeah, hey, we're going to buy that for you. Or even not even people in the family. I mean, you know, people... You know, I think about nonprofits that I'm really engaged with. I'm thinking about people who I know have gone through difficult circumstances. You know, we have uh, some really good friends who have like $100,000 of loan debt, you know, it's just, which is like a lot of people. I think it'd be amazing just to be like, hey, we're going to cover your loan debt. And it not, you know, and so I, and I know that sounds so cheesy, but I mean, that's just, for me, that's fun to think about how could I make enough money where I could financially take a burden because more than just mentally, there's, there's a burden that comes with the mortgage. There's a burden that comes with how do I pay for rent or these things or, you know, I, I think it would be fun to be able to do that for people too. So that's another drive we have. Well, Blake, you walk the talk. As I have, as I have advised others who are younger, they may not be in the best work environment, but walk through it. Don't step in it and roll around in the muck. And continue to hone your leadership skills so that someday, when you have the opportunity to lead, you will be well prepared to do so. You are 32 years old, and you are starting that wave of helping to create this next wave of great leaders. And just keep it going. Keep it going so that people have opportunity that they didn't have. I did not at your age. 
And the work that you're doing is so inspiring and just the goodness to be good and to be kind to one another and to help one another. And please say the latter quote again, because everyone should write that down and then live it every single day. Hold the ladder for others to climb up. Blake, what a wonderful morning. You've made my Monday by (laughs) allowing me to interview you and just wishing you the greatest success. And I feel very blessed that I can now know you, call you friend, colleague, and my inspiration. Oh, (laughs) well, thank you. And thank you so much for interviewing me. This was fun. We, we turned, I was a little bit nervous. It's fun. Now I understand why my guests are always kind of like, I feel a little nervous, but um, I appreciate you. Excited to continue working for you, working with you. And uh, for our listeners, thanks so much for listening. Now you know a little bit more about this guy who has a podcast that you check out and stay tuned. We'll have another guest next week. Thanks for listening and I'll see you.